0: Hello and welcome back to the Houndsville Unit Podcast. My name is Dr. Cody Quirk. I am a radiologist at the Medical University of South Carolina. And in Podcast 4, we're discussing facing challenges throughout your medical training. As we all know, medical training is incredibly challenging in its own right. Unfortunately, life doesn't slow down for anyone during these challenging times. Many people go through hardships in their medical training. It may include losing a loved one, relationship struggles, including divorce, and our own personal medical problems. Episode four is dedicated to discussing those things that will help us get through these hardships and how we can learn and change from those experiences. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. John Tobin. He's currently a musculoskeletal radiology fellow at UVA Radiology. Dr. Tobin did his residency at the University of Indiana and medical school at Wake Forest School of Medicine. Originally, he's from Charlotte, North Carolina. Dr. Tobin brings a unique perspective on radiology training. He was diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma as a second-year resident and went through chemotherapy during his residency. Uh, Unfortunately, this was not the end of the process, and he experienced a recurrence of his disease as he was transitioning into his MSK fellowship. Uh, He underwent another four cycles of chemotherapy before undergoing an autologous stem cell transplant. During his chemotherapy, he was also adjusting to life as a musculoskeletal radiology fellow trying to plan for the future, including getting married to his fiance Brooke, and trying to decide if applying to uh, radiology jobs was a good idea. Here's our conversation on facing challenges in medical training. Thanks for listening in. Uh, you completed your stem cell transplant um, recently. Now you're getting back to working. Um, I guess you're not working from home at the well. You are at the current moment, but had you gone back to work before all the coronavirus stuff had gotten started?
1: Yeah, so it's it's been kind of an interesting last several months. So the kind of guidelines after stem cell transplant is a hundred days of. I think they might have called it social isolation. It's essentially what we're calling social distancing now. Mm-hmm. You know, with the idea of being your immune system is very. It's pretty much just been completely rebooted. They've wiped your stem, you know, your um, bone marrow clean, and it, with the stem cell transplant, kind of rebooting the entire immune system. So it's both naive to other pathogens, and you know, your counts are lower. So in that first hundred days is when you're the most vulnerable. Uh, so during that time, you know, you're allowed to see family members. You're allowed, obviously, to see people you live with, but they advise to kind of avoid public places and that would include work. You know, some people, I guess if they work from home, could have immediately gone back to work. You know, there's the fatigue Uh, aspect. Yeah, I was about to
0: say you may not have the energy to full to fully function even if
1: you are working from home. Yeah. So the way I approached it is, you know, I had my stem cell transplant in uh, November. I was admitted actually I think either November first or second. Um, went home around I think the November 19th 20th and then really for the rest of November and most of December I was mostly just trying to kind of recover my strength and uh, you know I did very small amounts of work on a kind of chart review research project some in December but most of that time was just kind of I was having some fatigue from the process which is normal and you know just recovering my strength but you know, as I started getting towards the back end of that hundred days, so kind of once I got past day 50, 60, you know, I started to feel stronger and mm-hmm. start, you know, was starting to get more stir crazy just sitting around home all day. So I started actually in mid-January reading some uh studies from home. Uh we had the advantage here at UVA of our fellows were given home workstations mainly for car responsibilities. Uh, so it allowed me to start working that way. Um, and then I hit my 100-day mark, uh, February 20th. And so around that time, uh, I think the following week, I went back to work.
0: Mm-hmm. But uh, you weren't allowed to do procedures and stuff like that initially, right?
1: No. So the again, <laughs> all of this has kind of gotten thrown up in the air by the current situation. But the plan was... <laughs> you know, to probably for about a month, just work, you know, be back in the reading room. So be around other people. You're still being exposed to people who could be sick then, but avoid patient interaction just because it's a little higher risk for about another month. So it was probably around, honestly, this time, end of March, you know, middle to end of March that I was going to start interacting with patients. Um, So what happened, you know, then I was at work for about Three weeks of just, you know, normal work minus the patient interaction part, Mm -hmm. but still in the reading room interacting with, you know, my co-fellows and staffing out in person. And then all of this uh, coronavirus pandemic kicked in into gear and transitioned back to working from home. So now I'm back to kind of where I was. (laughs) Right back
0: to square one almost. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So uh, I guess kind of take us back now to your initial diagnosis. since you you covered that so thoroughly there, um, it's been a long, difficult process. Obviously, um, can you kind of give us the background about uh, your initial diagnosis? What you noticed that was different, and kind of walk us through those that initial stage.
1: Sure. So um, I was in my second year of residency at Indiana University. Uh, honestly, the moment I kind of remember feeling a lymph node, kind of right around you know my Draw lines of kind of in that, uh, guess it would be a level 2a 2b lymph node, uh, if you're going to get specific in the head and neck radiology world. I can't, I can't but, check uh,
0: you on that since I'm MSK <laughs> and
1: haven't thought about that in a while. <laughs> but I felt a lymph node, and I remember vividly this was probably in, I think I had a call weekend in like March maybe, and I was on call in the hospital, and you know, you're kind of just on call by yourself, you have a staff there, so things got slow for a second and I walked into the ultrasound room and just, you know, turned the machine on and, you know, stuck the probe on my neck and I saw kind of a larger lymph node there. Mm-hmm. So I thought it was a little weird, but you know, I'd had some respiratory infections around that time. So just decided to watch it. And then mm-hmm. I noticed another, not huge, but kind of large node kinda of in my neck, slightly lower down a couple of weeks later. And still just kind of watched it, but they just they they never were growing quickly, and mm-hmm. I never really had any symptoms. But you know, it it got to the point where they weren't getting better. So I talked to one of my friends who's an ENT rel, uh, who was an ENT resident at IU, and uh, he helped kind of get me plugged into their clinic. Saw, you know, one of the ENT physicians in clinic, and <laughs> after there the whole kind of diagnostic vortex started. So.
0: Yeah, going um, through biopsy and pet ct's yeah. and that sort of stuff.
1: Yeah, so it was a core biopsy, then 2 weeks waiting for results, then inconclusive results resulting in an excisional biopsy, another couple weeks waiting for results, mm-hmm. and then eventually, you know, a diagnosis of Hodgkin lymphoma, a pet ct, and sure. yeah.
0: So, um I guess at that point, so you were in Indiana as a resident. You grew up in North Carolina. Did you have any kind of uh, supports around you in Indiana? Or how did you handle that part of it?
1: Um, Well, I mean, I had, you know, I I knew my co-residents at that point. uh, Because, you know, I'd been about a year and a half in. So Mm -hmm. I wasn't, you know, super close friends with any of them. Just, you know, by... I was getting to be friends with them, but I just, you know, it wasn't like people in my entire life. Yeah. Um, but I had good relationships with all my co-residents. Um, my now fiance, I right around that same time we started dating. So we started dating, you know, I probably noticed in around March, we probably started dating, I think in April and, or we did start dating in April. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) And, I remember that date. Yeah, I know. I was just <laughs> realizing I can't say I we probably started dating when I our <laughs> anniversary. Um <laughs> but uh so we had been dating and then it was around June the time, you know, that I finally went and got it checked out. Um, so I'd known her, but it was the early stages of relationship. Sure. So, you know, I had my parents in North Carolina who I was, you know, in contact with obviously, you know, same thing with my brothers, you know, who one of them is in one of them is in Oregon. One of them is in North Carolina. Mm-hmm. Um, I had them, and then so they were kind of my support as far as you know, talking through this process, the stresses and anxieties of waiting on a diagnosis and all of that. Which honestly, as far as just stress and anxiety, waiting on a diagnosis is probably the worst part of the entire process. Yeah. I mean, so- not it's not physically, but it's the worst psychological part yeah
0: for sure um now at this point had you told anyone about it or uh, even family your program director resident co-residents anything like that
1: yeah so I mean Brooke my fiance, knew about it my family knew about it kind of throughout the process I once I got the biopsy you know I think I had to you know, take a day off for both of the biopsies I'd take one or two days off around mm-hmm. those times. Actually I, I take that back. The core I didn't. I just kind of went and got it done. You know, actually at the end of a workday. day. Yeah. The excisional biopsy had to take time off. So I talked to my program director and the chief residents and they were incredibly supportive. Um I didn't talk to my co residents until I had an actual diagnosis. But I mean my program director Daryl Heitkamp, who's was there for I think 10 years now he's down in Florida. Mm -hmm. Was great. I mean, he was a great program director in a lot of ways, but he was awesome during that process. Chief residents were, you know, incredibly helpful actually. So one of the surreal parts of the whole process too was the day I actually got called with the final diagnosis after the excisional biopsy, you know, that again, that whole diagnosis process had probably taken about a month. So I had just started a night float rotation. And I got called like the morning after, I think I woke up to the phone call from like, you know, sleeping the afternoon. I got the call, talked to, you know, once I kind of processed it, you know, I talked to several people, including my family, you know, fiance, all of that, our girlfriend then now fiance. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, after that, I talked to my program director and the chief residents. And I think the pet was a day or two later. And one of the, chief residents came in and kind of took over my shift, you know, that night before so that I wasn't having to work a night shift and then get a PET scan. Yeah. So they were, they were awesome.
0: Great. Um, I guess going back to, you said that Daryl handled it really well. And um, do you think there are any lessons there that other program directors who could be listening to the podcast might take from that in case they're I mean, dealing I, with something similar?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think honestly, I would expect, you know, Daryl's great. Uh, I would expect most program directors, you know, would probably be reasonable about this. You know, one advantage we had at IU is it was a big residency. So there was, I think 15 residents per class and, you know, it was relatively easy to get things covered. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, he was great about what can we do for you? And I think they helped. I think if I'm not mistaken, I think Daryl helped kind of plug me into the oncologist I ended up seeing you know, and get me, got me seen a little bit earlier than maybe usual. Mm -hmm. Um, So, I mean, it was great there. Uh, But yeah, I think, I mean, I think just being understanding, the thing is most doctors, you know, we have stresses in our lives, but most of us go into medicine, you know, to help people. And I think, you know, most people in this situation, you know, in a, extends down to co-residents too are willing to help.
0: Yeah I think I think that's true and um, I think most people would go out of their way to try and help out but um, if there, there are any specific things that you think people, especially people like program directors who are are really in a position to try and help you through something like this, maybe not maybe they're not the support situation of a family, but they can at least um, make certain things easier for you to, to just take that little extra bit of stress out of it. You know, it doesn't have to be a cancer diagnosis. It could be something else you're facing in your life.
1: I guess the one thing that kind of did help take stress out was being assured quickly. Like I'd be taken off the call schedule and it would be covered. And not necessarily from the sense like, Oh, I really, you know, don't want to work call, but you know, those are anxieties to be honest. That was one of, as far as work related, both in the initial diagnosis and the subsequent part, you know, everyone or most people who end up in medicine are pretty high achievers. We're used to working. Mm -hmm. So we don't want to let people down. We don't want to feel lazy and it's kind of a tough position to be in. Honestly, when you say I can't do this or I can't work or someone has to cover my call, you know, you never really want to be that person in general um so even when you have a real reason like i did it's stressful so i'd say that's probably one thing program directors is recognize the fact that if someone's dealing with something like this they probably feel guilty even though they shouldn't they Mm -hmm. feel guilty about the fact that they're gonna not you know miss time on rotation or not be able to cover call responsibilities that they were assigned. Right. So I think kind of nipping that in the bud early so that they're not as stressed about that probably helps. I think Daryl did a good job of that. Him yeah. And the chief residents did a good job of saying, don't worry about call. Don't worry about these things. Take care of yourself.
0: Yeah. We'll um, take care of getting someone else scheduled for your spot. Take, take all that stuff off your, your plate so that, um, so that you can mitigate that as much as possible.
1: Yeah. And then I guess depending on the circumstances too, uh, this honestly came up, up more during my recurrent diagnosis, mm-hmm. which we'll get to, but yeah. um, covering, you know, kind of plugging you in or giving you an idea of who to talk to uh, uh, with regards to health insurance questions or, you know, disability or benefits. You know, a lot of us, especially when you're young and relatively healthy, And maybe especially if you don't have a family yet, you haven't really had to deal with a lot of those things like Mm -hmm. health insurance companies or, uh, you know, applying, you know, applying for disability or anything like that. And just kind of I think a program director, one thing they can do to be helpful, too, is just kind of whether it's the residency coordinator or the program director themselves kind of plugging you into the right people so that if you have to take leave or anything like that, you kind of know who to talk to.
0: Yeah, they should have those resources at hand so that they can at least make you not have to search them out yourself. Um, So I guess what, obviously it was very stressful just having to deal with your diagnosis. um, But so you went through chemotherapy and you tried to work at the same time. How did you um, cope with the stresses of fighting, uh, fighting your disease and also cope with just regular everyday stress of being a resident?
1: Yeah. I, uh, I guess kind of two things with that. Um, I was on rotations. I just fortunately happened to be on rotations that weren't super procedure intensive or, you know, long or different hours. So Mm -hmm. they fortunately didn't have to mess with the schedule too much. I think I was in um, an abdominal imaging rotation, and a mammoth rotation. So, you know, everyone again was understanding about the time I had to miss, uh, during my chemo, uh, and that fall, I went through four cycles and I'd get it on a Monday, then usually have the Monday and Tuesday. And usually that wins I think at least half of the time that Wednesday I had off. So had a few days off. Then I'd kind of come back to work on a, um, you know, working, you know, and I might go home, you know, a couple hours early, but I came back to working like that Thursday, Friday, And then by the next week, I usually felt good enough. And I mean, there was no pressure for me to come in, come back to work that soon. It honestly was just, you know, when you're feeling, when you're feeling terrible, you need to be home. But there's a certain point where you kind of feel a little bad and it almost is better to have something to take your mind off things. Sure. So I think everyone was understanding about me doing what I could. You know, there wasn't any pressure to read fast or, you know if you know if it was at three thirty in the day and i was feeling kind of tired they'd send me home so uh it was nice in that regard but um you know i think i also just wanted to miss as little as possible you know just because again one it was a distraction but two i just wanted to you know have as little interruption in the process as was possible without you know overextending myself.
0: Yeah. Keep life as normal as possible without, uh, without hurting yourself essentially. Right.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Um, so you went through chemotherapy, had a good, uh, response, um, and then were able to finish out residency without any kind of, uh, extension or anything like that. Everything else was pretty uneventful. Is that right?
1: Yeah. Um, really, I mean, I think I finished chemo treatment at the end of October um, had some radiation but honestly that was nothing it was 15 minutes during lunch usually right. where I'd walk down the hall and <laughs> go in the radiation suite again I it was a very low dose of radiation there's you know much higher doses that can be yeah. a lot more uh, have a lot more side effects or you know have you feeling a lot worse but mine was pretty minimal because it was mm-hmm. just to a small area and a lower dose um, you know I I got transitioned back onto the call schedule kind of at the end of that winter you know you know December January kind of thing and it was all you know working with me you know asking when I felt good enough to do it and again I wanted to get back to it as soon as I could and do a good job Mm -hmm. Um, but everyone was super understanding about you know do you feel good enough to do this you know there was no external pressure for me to rush back Um, but then, you know, really by that spring, you know, I was, I would, I only did, you know, a total of, uh, two months of chemo. So, you know, I I had to recover for several months for sure. But by that spring, I mean, I ran the half marathon in Indy that May. Um, so, you know, and I was pretty aggressive (laughs) trying to rehab. Um, but you know, that spring I was feeling pretty good. So you know, I was able to go to AIRP. I was able to interview, you know, for fellowship. I was yeah. able to, um, you know, study for boards. And really there wasn't any interruption uh, for the rest of residency <laughs> with the process. Uh, it wasn't until the very end of residency that this all kicked back. But, um, you know, for the rest of residency, it really wasn't, you know, it was something I had experienced. Um, but it wasn't something that played a major role in you know my residency education outside of that you know two to three month window where i was actively being treated
0: yeah did you have any worries that uh, during your application process for fellowship that that would be an issue going forward or uh, anything like that
1: yeah that's a good question i wasn't you know i wasn't quite sure how to approach it mm-hmm. uh to be honest it's funny to say this now in retrospect knowing what happened I, You know, I was stage 1A, which carries a 90 plus percent initial cure rate with chemo. So I was in the unfortunate percentage. But when I looked at it that way, you know, during fellowship applications, I felt pretty confident that I had been, you know, definitively treated. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it wasn't like a major concern at that point that it was like, oh, no, we can't take this person. Something might happen. Um, you know, I, I I wasn't sure how to address it. You know, I kind of went back and forth on that initially Mm -hmm. when I was applying. Do I, you know, kind of not talk about it? Do I, you know, kind of halfway talk about it or do I actually talk about that? And I decided just to be forthright and kind of talk about my experience. You know, it wasn't my entire, um, you know, uh, entire essay or whatever about that, but I did acknowledge, you know, the role that played. Um, So, I mean, then I, you know, I was straightforward during interviews. I mean, no one, I, I kind of brought it up because I know there's rules about bringing those things up and talked about it briefly. Um, I, I don't think it would be inappropriate not to, you know, to choose not to talk about that either. Uh, I don't think there's a necessarily right or wrong way to approach it. I just kind of, I think in part because I felt like, I felt like I had been cured. Um, I was comfortable talking about it, I guess.
0: Yeah. You felt like it was in the past, it was an experience that you could share. And um, yeah. So I actually remember whenever we had interviewed you for fellowship and then having the conversation afterwards about that and be like, yeah, he was really open about it. And we appreciated that. Um, Obviously the like, well, you know, it's, Uh, I think you probably even told us during the interview that there was, you know, 90 plus percent cure rate. And so it definitely came up, though, like, well, if this recurs, you know, we have to be prepared um, and be willing to support him. Um, But obviously we still uh, chose you for the fellowship uh, over a lot of other applicants just um, because of who you are. And uh, I think that uh, was definitely the, the right decision
1: well, no, I appreciate it. I'm definitely glad to be here i uh, i wish I wish that second part hadn't come up but uh, yeah <laughs> uh, i mean i've I'm sure we'll talk about it, but everyone here has been as impressively supportive as everyone at i u was I've been very lucky at both my training uh, training sites that people have been awesome about it
0: yeah, so um, I kind of know this story already, but um, can you Take the listeners through the um, the second round, essentially here, um, kind of leading up to your recurrence
1: sure, so uh, you know spring of fourth year, you know, I was doing more electives, you know going to conferences, pretty busy, um, not necessarily you know from and pretty much I think there was a stretch for several months where I was taking call or going to a conference or going out of town on like my own vacation or something like that, uh, you know, during the spring where it was very busy. So I was feeling a little tired during the spring. Right.
0: John, John, we um, all know you were post core fourth year. So you weren't actually doing anything, right?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I didn't say I was doing a lot of radiology. Um, no, but I mean, we do end up taking more calls the second half of our fourth year, you know, to kind of give the third year a little less call responsibility or studying for core. But Rotation-wise, yeah, it wasn't the most intense at that point. I actually had done a good bit of night float in the kind of winter time. So kind of coming off that stretch of night float and just flipping my days, having a little bit of call, and then, you know, both recreational travel and travel for conferences was kind of busy. So I was feeling tired, but I wasn't sure, you know, if I just had a lot on my plate in a lot of different ways, you know, and I didn't have, I wasn't having like, night sweats or fevers or anything i did have a few kind of pains i had i guess there were some instances where i had low grade fevers but i kind of chalked chalked them up to you know your kind of just usual usual seasonal viruses and stuff like that
0: usual tuberculosis so, or something yeah
1: and you know the thing that i thought i was in the clear was i just couldn't feel any lymph nodes that were enlarged mm-hmm. so you know that went on and then you know, made it through, you know, the last few rotations of uh, residency, I'd noticed I'd lost maybe, you know, a few pounds. It wasn't, you know, a sudden stark weight loss, but I was maybe five pounds less than I usually was. And again, I wasn't sure whether that was just kind of stress- you know being busy or whatnot yeah so but uh,
0: we gotta be clear here five pounds on you is a lot different than five pounds on me so
1: these yeah, people these people listening
0: can't see you you're not uh you're already a pretty thin uh healthy guy so um,
1: yeah it was you know being down to like 145 148 from usually around like 155 ish so mm-hmm. um but yeah so anyways uh probably, I think I finished my last rotation. My last rotation was the second shift neuro. And I, you know, we kind of made our schedules there cause it's a call type rotation where you're splitting it with uh, a couple other residents. And I had, you know, because I was moving to Virginia, I you know, left the last several days of it open mm-hmm. to kind of give me time to move. So I think I'd finished my last rotation and then like, pretty much like the next day after I did my last, you know, evening shift, um, me and my fiance went to a family reunion and one of her family from her extended family. And, you know, we're there for a day. And on the way drive back, I started getting some kind of just pain in the center of my chest, which was, you know, I wasn't sure whether I was having anxiety or reflux, but it just kept getting worse throughout the day. And it eventually landed me in the ER that night. Um, you know, I just just wanted to make sure I didn't have something really strange. So, you know, going in the ER, they did a CT for, you know, PE, uh, the ER physician, you know, came back about an hour later, showed me the scan, had some enlarged lymph nodes in my mediastinum. So, you know, went through that whole process of about, you know, by the time I got the CT back, it was probably 1 a.m., probably another couple hours till it was discharged. And then, honestly, less than 48 hours later, we were scheduled to move to Virginia. Um, you know, we had paid a moving company, had everything packed up, so that at least was done. But, uh, you know, my dad ended up flying out, helping us drive. Um, from Indianapolis to Virginia, and so it was a it was a whirlwind. Um, got seen within probably the first forty eight hours of being here in Virginia by my new oncologist here. Um, so that's kind of led to that. Then at the same time was trying to figure out, you know, how it, how does this go with fellowship? You know, talking both to my um, residency director at IU, you know, who's Aaron Comer, who took at took over after um, Daryl, talking with my oncologist in Indiana, talking with uh, my new oncologist here, you know, talking with uh, Nick Nacy, our uh, MSK fellowship director here at Virginia and just kind of figuring out, you know, it's in like that very, very small time in between fellowship and residency. So making sure, you know, my benefits, had started and I was mm-hmm. covered and all of that, making sure I could, you know, be treated in Virginia. Was it safe for me to drive? So it was a crazy, crazy, you know, yeah, several in, days.
0: And all of this, that's one of the things that you tend to forget about is that you um, got to make sure you have insurance and all these other little things on top of it that are kind of painful just in normal life. But when you throw in the urgency of your situation, just, I can only imagine makes it exponentially worse.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's one of those funny things, you know, you're, once you're actually getting chemo, chemo is not fun at all. And I don't want to undersell that because it, you know, you can truly feel terrible with it, Mm -hmm. but kind of once you're on that path of, you know, having scheduled treatments and getting treated and you know you're covered you have stresses about feeling bad or whatever, but it's kind of easy to get into that rhythm to some extent. Again, kind of the same way that I said the diagnostic process was stressful. The, the process of just, you know, figuring out, you know, can I move? Can I start fellowship? Do I have insurance? Was probably more emotionally stressful than, you know, the first few rounds of chemo. I mean, the, the only other time, you know, this past fall that I felt as, you know, maybe nervous uh, or anxious was probably going into stem cell transplant just because I knew which, how big of an endeavor that was uh, Mm. and how intense the treatment was. But honestly, you know, once I got to Virginia and everything was figured out and it was kind of, you know, obviously there was interruptions to the normal start of fellowship, but still being able to kind of go in when I could and, you know, uh, knowing I was heading, you know, knowing I was covered, knowing I, you know, this was what the treatment plan was going to be. It actually wasn't as stressful then. I was kind of able to relax, but, uh, to, to what extent I could, but, uh, that probably three to four days, um, was very stressful.
0: Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, from the faculty side, it, it whenever you were going through your chemo the second time around, it didn't feel any different than working with a different fellow because uh, there were so many faculty and so many fellows that we worked with you guys every, you know, maybe once a week, if that. Um, and so, you know, if you had missed a couple of days because you were feeling bad after your chemotherapy, uh, from our perspective, it was... It wasn't any different than working with any of the other fellows, because um, by the time you got back, you were, you seemed like you had good energy. You were reading as many studies as you needed to be. Um, so, uh, it is it's interesting to hear uh, from your side uh, how it was different.
1: Yeah, I mean, and that that's one thing I guess probably worth saying is I'm very lucky that I chose to go into radiology mm-hmm. because you know there's certainly a mental demand. Which actually, you know, the first couple days whenever I was coming back from a round of chemo, that was always probably the biggest challenge was there was the fatigue, but also just kind of the mental attention part. Because I don't know whether it's the steroids they give you or the, you know, quote unquote chemo brain, which otherwise I didn't experience that much. But I felt like, you know, some of those first few days back from chemo, the biggest challenge was just, you know, being able to sit down and pay attention. So I'd have to take like a little more of a break in between reading studies, and I usually would. But all that said, you know, radiology is fairly easy to do while on chemo. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, you can sit down, you're reading studies. I mean, I, I started limiting my patient interactions so I couldn't do some of the procedures, but I was still able to do a decent portion of what, you know, a normal fellow responsibility is. Whereas, you know, I can't imagine, I honestly, Even back when I was on chemo during residency, which was maybe a little less intense, I couldn't have done, you know, the responsibilities of a surgery resident or, you know, a pulmonary critical care resident or fellow or something like that. Mm -hmm. So radiology was very conducive to, you know, being able to work during the times I felt good in between. Mm-hmm. Um, because it, it wasn't that physically demanding. So I was yeah. able to get back to work quicker.
0: So um do you feel like you had a better support system the second time around than the first time? I mean, obviously, Ava, at this point you were engaged and Brooke was moving with you to Virginia. Um, you were a little bit closer to home, um, but you were in a new institution. Um, so how do you feel like that stacked up this time around?
1: Yeah, I mean, having Brooke, who's you know, I think I'd said is my fiance. That's my fiance. Um, uh, having her here was huge. Um, just to have another person, you know, my parents have been awesome throughout this entire process, but parents a little different and, you know, uh, having someone who you're living with to help you out Mm -hmm. and just honestly, to be there as kind of an emotional support person was awesome. Um, and you know, both just in terms of helping me out when I needed help, but also just taking my mind off things, watching TV shows together, going on walks, going hiking when I was, you know, kind of in that couple weeks out of chemo before the next cycle where I was actually feeling pretty good. So, um, you know, that was, that was awesome. The, you know, I'd say I couldn't really say my residency or fellowship has been either one of them was more supportive because they were both about as supportive as I could possibly imagine. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, my, my co-fellows i knew, I didn't know as well as I knew my co-residents at that time, uh, just because, you know, they were people I was starting with and because of the timing of this, as opposed to people I had worked, you know, a year and a half with, but Mm -hmm. that said, all of them have been incredibly supportive and awesome throughout this process. You know, they kind of took up the mantle of covering all of my call and all those, you know, responsibilities during the process. So that was, uh, very helpful. Um, So yeah, I think probably the only major difference was probably Brooke and that, you know, was huge and especially with kind of a more intense course of treatment was a big difference in a positive way, but I felt well supported, honestly. I've been very blessed both in terms of the residency and fellowship programs I've been a part of and just having the family I do, Uh, you know, I've been very lucky as far as that goes.
0: Yeah. Um, Was there anything specific that a co resident or co -co fellow this time around um, that you think have been a little bit more helpful or stand out in your mind?
1: I mean, I think just the reassurance again, kind of circling back to that sense of guilt that you get, Mm -hmm. the reassurance that they had everything covered and I didn't need to worry about like trying to rush back to a call schedule or. You know, part of what our fellow responsibilities are at UVA and part of what honestly attracted me to UVA was fellows help cover the overnight ER. So, you know, once every seven to eight weeks, they'll cover the overnight ER shifts. And, you know, that obviously is a pretty taxing thing Mm -hmm. um, to work overnights and something that, you know, coming off of all of this and during it wouldn't have been very feasible and kind of the reassurance that they were fine covering it. Mm-hmm. uh, was really helpful. Cause it just made me not feel quite as bad about that. I mean, I still wish I could be helping, but, uh, you know, just to really just those reassurances that you're not, you know, that they're happy to uh, help and to know that you're not kind of letting anyone down. I think yeah. you're, there's already enough stress <laughs> the process that, You know, it's, it's silly to think that I would even think that way, but I think it's just, you know, again, you go through high school, college, you know, med school, residency being somewhat of a high achiever just to get through those things. So it's weird to kind of have to stop and, you know, say you can't do something.
0: Yeah. I think um, we are all much better at being the person who's being relied on than having to rely on people around us. And none of us are really that comfortable with it. Um, And so that plays a huge role in that.
1: No, I think that's definitely true. I think like, you know, it's funny because among like your colleagues, you might think of people more as type A or type B, but I feel like compared to the general population, everyone in medicine is very type A. Yeah, that's probably. (laughs) So like even the people who seem more relaxed are probably way more type A than a lot of people just kind of in the general population. So I think... All of us are, like you said, programmed that way and would rather, you know, have someone rely on them than have to rely on someone else. Not mm-hmm. not necessarily because of trust, just because you, you know, you're used to working hard and, you know, carrying that load. So you don't want to, you know, be a burden to anyone else.
0: Yeah. Um, do you feel that um, planning for your next step? So right now, obviously, you're starting to at least think about jobs. And we've talked about this before, but for the listeners, um, do you feel like, kind of trying to plan out these next steps obviously you've got a wedding coming up um, you need to find a job those things do you think that helps with uh, getting your mind off of things or is that more of a um, you know just another burden to think about while you're trying to get through all of this
1: uh, you know I'm someone who likes to plan so it initially it was a stress I mean I think um, as I've gotten it taken care of then it's honestly been more reassuring in some mm-hmm. ways but uh, you know, our wedding, we pushed back a couple of months, which ended up not being that difficult of a process. We were planning to get married this coming summer and pushed it back to the fall and the venue was understanding. And we hadn't, it's not like we had to push back a wedding that was two months away. We mm-hmm. had enough time that that wasn't too hard to reschedule. Um, the future as far as jobs and fellowship was definitely a source of stress. And one thing I'd encourage people to do, uh, if they're ever in this situation, is just kind of, don't hesitate to talk with your, you know, whether it be your fellowship director, whoever, division head, uh, about, you know, these kind of things, because that was something that gave me anxiety to even kind of have to bring those things up, Um, and I fortunately did earlier, you know, in January, and we kind of figured out, got the the plan is to just extend fellowship several months, you know, which gives me more time to be seen here. um, More time to, you know, get me additional kind of treatments I might need just as far as uh, potential, you know, kind of consolidation therapy. That's still kind of up in the air with all of the COVID situation and is on pause right now, but there's a chance I might get a little more treatment um, in the future and it also gives me a little more time to recover before you know having to rush into a job so yeah you know i having those conversations one you know was productive for figuring things out but you know once i had it figured out that took a lot of stress that was on my mind it kind of was able to let me relax a bit more so definitely don't be afraid to initiate those conversations if you're ever in this situation, because again, one, most people are going to be very understanding and two, the sooner you get those things figured out, the sooner you can stop stressing about them. And then as far as, oh, go ahead. go ahead. I
0: was just going to say, I think uh, everyone should learn from that. And even if you're not dealing with something uh, like what you had to go through, Uh, that we all need to be a little bit more open about our thought process uh, within our departments and be able to have someone that you can go to whenever you're facing any kind of challenge or um, whether it's a professional challenge, a personal challenge, just, or just someone to bounce ideas off of. You really, you really need to be able to go to somebody. You can't internalize all of this.
1: Yeah. And I think that's, you know, to that point, that's something I've probably one of my weaknesses is I'm someone who likes to, again, kind of back to that type a, you know, plan everything out myself and take Mm -hmm. care of everything. And, you know, I've had, I've never been someone who's been very good at, uh, finding a specific mentor. I guess I've, I've sought mentorship throughout the natural course of things in the sense of talking to people. And, you know, when I have questions or when I, you know, uh, need guidance i think i'm fairly good at being proactive about those things which is a form of mentoring as well but i've never been the person who like off the bat finds a quote unquote mentor you know to latch on to so i think you know if you have if you're in a situation where you've been somewhere a while obviously that's someone you can go to if you have someone who you feel like is a mentor but even if you don't i think just being proactive talking to people um you know in leadership you know whether it's you know, program directors, residency directors, whatever. Um, I think that's, you can't be afraid to do that because it's, again, it's, it's tempting being a type A type person to want to try to take care of it all yourself. And there's some things you just have to admit yourself you can't and you need to talk to other people about.
0: Exactly. Um, so, and throughout all this process, do you feel like it has changed how you approach things as a radiologist in terms of, either talking with patients, doing procedures, just reading studies from day to day?
1: Yeah. I mean, I'd be lying if I said there was this, just this giant, profound, every single case, every single day. Mm-hmm. But, you know, and there's certain times when you're, you know, moving on a busy call day or reading, you know, a, a big stack of plain films, or you're kind of just moving through the work of the day. But I do think, you know, it has forced me to Pause a bit more when I'm considering like patient histories, digging into a chart, maybe, you know, especially. And it, it certainly applies to non cancer patients too. But cancer patients, a lot of times, the history can be a little complicated and there can be a million comparisons. It can be easy to just kind of want to move through it. Mm. And I, it has forced me to probably be a little more diligent about trying to understand exactly you know, where someone, if someone's, you know, if it's a follow-up scan for treatment, you know, I don't need to try to understand every single chemo they got, but know where they are and to kind of know what the question is, know what the status is of, you know, their cancer or disease, you know, are they looking for response to treatment or recurrence or anything mm-hmm. like that? Um, it's probably given me a little more perspective on that and kind of understanding how stressful it is to wait on test results, how complicated, you know, honestly, I have almost no medical problems outside of this. And I feel like it's still complicated to discuss. And then you start, Mm -hmm. you know, people who are less healthy, how complicated medical histories can be. And you want someone to at least, you know, again, does the radiologist need to go deep into a history of hypertension and how it's managed? Probably not, but knowing under like kind of at least having a good grasp of what the clinical picture is of the patient so you can adequately answer the question to help guide treatment. I think, I think it is, I mean, it's, you also see, I, I think as a patient how much testing and imaging can guide treatment for oncologists and, you know, how much uh imaging results can you know make a big difference so Mm -hmm. I think having that perspective does force me to kind of slow down uh and take the time to go into patient charts with things like that
0: yeah so a little little add-on extra bonus session here um how since you just came out of it not that long ago how would you uh advise people to handle the social isolation that we are currently uh living through
1: sure yeah i do have a little bit of experience with this so i'll <laughs> admit that i'm still going a bit stir-crazy. But we have to clarify uh, that
0: that was uh that that was mandated it was not by choice or because you don't have any friends or anything like that
1: yeah <laughs> <laughs> um but i uh, you know I, I still get a little stir crazy but certainly you know during that time of those first hundred days had to kind of adjust, especially towards the end of it where I was feeling stronger, how to Mm -hmm. get through a day where I was only staying at home. Um, I think, you know, a couple big things are one, if you have work, you know, work can be a good distraction and trying to, you know, further your education or further, you know, be productive at work. certainly helps. Um, I think outside of that, uh, Trying to exercise, you know, outside as much as possible, obviously while, you know, respecting social distancing. But you know, if there's a, you know, just getting out for walks, going for runs, that kind of thing, mm-hmm. uh, definitely helps me a lot. Um, I've found one thing that helped back then, you know, just to kind of calm my mind down, and certainly, honestly, helps now, just with this constant influx of coronavirus news, is I really think like reading books and I'm not necessarily talking about medical textbooks, but like novels or something like that is kind of a good way to stimulate your mind, but also unplug because it's so easy if you're, you know, scrolling through your phone, even if you're trying to say read an article about sports or something that's not coronavirus, it is so easy to drift back into that.
0: You cannot avoid it.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, I think we should all be aware of the situation and, know what we need to do as far as guidelines but there's a certain point where i think you just stress yourself out more all if that's all you're reading and i i've I've been victim to that you know certain days in the past couple weeks where i just feel like i'm overwhelmed with all of that Mm -hmm. so i think sometimes reading a book put your phone down read a book that at least for me especially before bed is a good way to kind of wind my mind down from all of this coronavirus stimulation so sure um, I think those things and then, you know, whether it's talking with friends or family uh, definitely helps, you know, Brooke's been awesome. She's had to shoulder a lot of this social burden over the past six months, but mm-hmm. uh, she's been incredibly supportive as well.
0: Yeah. Having a support, supportive people in your life is i I'm sure a huge part of it. Um, one of the, other uh, attendings here at MUSC tells the residents that they should do two hours of reading every night. One hour should be radiology and another one should be just whatever you want to read. And I think that that is some great advice. Obviously, um, not everybody can learn everything they need to know about radiology just with one hour a night, but um, just to take some time and read just for yourself. Um, get out of the, the Twitter sphere and social media and the news and just kind of learn some history or whatever it is, whatever your guilty pleasure is, uh, can be, can be hugely helpful.
1: Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, it's, uh, it's definitely a a useful way to, I think still stimulate your mind and stimulate your intellect. And I think Mm -hmm. a lot of people who are in fields like radiology or medicine, uh, tend to be intellectually curious people. So that kind of stimulation is still good, but getting a different source of it, uh, can be a nice, you know, departure
0: for sure. Well, do you have any, uh, any closing thoughts here before we wrap this up?
1: No, I mean, I appreciate you giving me kind of a platform to talk about these things. It's, uh, it's still surreal in some ways because, you know, I've been again, a a healthy person throughout most of my life. I still think of myself as a healthy person, you know, I'm, building back up, starting to run more and more, um, you know, that exercise is also an outlet, but just, you know, getting into that, but it kind of shows, you know, obviously right now, everyone's mind is on coronavirus, but you can be a healthy person. These things can still come up and, you know, whether it doesn't have to be cancer, it can be other medical issues too. These things, you know, life happens to everyone. Yep. <laughs> um, and whether it's something as drastic as cancer or something, that might be not as drastic, but still very impactful, Mm -hmm. you know, they can make a difference. And I think the good thing is we're now in a era where people are, I think more understanding that, you know, of the concept of work life balance. And that doesn't necessarily mean just, you know, taking more time for vacation, but balancing, you know, whether it be childcare or medical issues, Mm -hmm. things like that. And I, I think trainees, there's a, we're kind of programmed to not want to rock the boat and not want to disappoint anyone um and i think that's a a good mentality overall but you can't be afraid to you know take care of yourself and you have to i think you should feel confident knowing that especially in radiology which i feel like is a very non-milling that field but really in any medical discipline you should feel confident talking to you know people in your program and your co-residents and fellows and know that they will be there for you and honestly if they aren't then you probably need to look into transferring
0: programs (laughs) yeah hopefully hopefully that uh that's the case wherever wherever you end up but um i think i agree with you the times have changed and people are more focused on the appropriate work-life balance not just the you know work hard play hard or um focusing on yourself and your family and the things that are important outside of work is a, is a huge part of everybody's life.
1: Okay. Right.
0: I, 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 okay. We good? Yeah. Um, let me start.